Hello, and welcome back to Talking Talmud. I'm one of your hosts, Yardena Asban, here with my friend and Chavruta Ann Gordon. Our daf today, Moed Katan, daf Gimel, page three. One other word of introduction that I wanted to give to this Masachet about Rashi. So we know that usually, I would say, the most common commentator that people use, is that a to say it, common commentator, um, that people use when they study Gemara tends to be Rashi. And there's something interesting here that there's actually two versions of Rashi um, on Moed Katan. There's a Rashi that was printed sort of in the standard Vilna edition, um, and it often does not line up with the Rashi that's quoted by Tosvos and other Rishonim. Um, and it's a different Rashi than what's printed along with the Rif and the Ein Yaakov. Um, so I, I, I just wanted to sort of point that out. Um, I'm not going to get into all the details of it and how people figured out which manuscript is maybe uh, more correct and which one actually gets uh, printed. But for example, if you're using an art scroll, um, they may refer to as like Rashi MS, which means Rashi uh, manuscript. And it refers to one of those manuscripts. It's, it, it's, it's uh, one that they call uh, the Parish Rashi Ha'amiti. Um, but I think it's just, you know, it, it, it's an interesting little piece of the history of Gemara and sort of which commentators fall in and, you know, what were the manuscripts that they used to actually, uh, you know, uh, know which is the correct version of one of the commentators. Because remember, many of these, again, were written before the printed press. I, I know I talk about the printed press often, but I, I just think we have to acknowledge like how many hundreds of years passed from when Mishnah is written and then Gemara and then even some of these earlier commentaries uh, till we sort of start to get like standardized text. Um, and so therefore you'll see some of these things and one, you know, and particularly with Moed Katz and with Rashi, you know, it's a little bit quirky, you know, what's actually the correct text of Rashi. We find that in a few other Masechot also. We'll talk about that, I'm sure, as we get to them. I just want to note, here's just another interesting tidbit about the printing press. There was, ne- you know, it was a f- several 400 years, you know, somewhat after Rashi, 450 years after Rashi. But um, there was never, a, the very first printed edition of the Shas included Rashi. I mean, I was going to say there was never an edition of, there was never a printed edition of the Talmud without Rashi. That's, I'm sure, not true, because I'm sure nowadays somebody's done that, right? Just taken the text and not included Rashi, or we have English translation and there's no Rashi. But from the beginning, when they printed the Talmud, it included Rashi as well, which without the Balayatosfo, meaning it was a different, it didn't look like the way we think of Adaf looking today. But I think that it's a testimony to you know, it's a nod to the need for commentary and obviously the, you know, the majesty of Rashi's commentary. What I want to move on to next is that we have a wonderful passage about Shemitah here. One of the things that we talked about yesterday is that, you know, there's no Talmud Bubbly on any of the agricultural masachto, uh, right? Anything that's in Seder Zoram other than Brachot is not written or doesn't have a Talmud version of in the Bubbly, only in the Yerushalmi. Um, and so we have to look for the passages in the Talmud Bubli that talks about uh, the, that agricultural law. And so beginning on the bottom of Amud Bet, uh, we have one of those passages, which is about Shemitah. Again, you would find those, the Mishnah is Masachat Shvit, which we don't have any Talmud Bavli for. And I, and I know you're going to read a little bit more inside, but I just want to sort of set up, you know, what they get into a discussion about is, is first of all, what is the status of keeping Shemitah today, right? 
that according to Rabbi Huda Hanasi, this is really discussed on the bottom of Amud Bet, uh, of Bet Amud Bet, uh, Shemitah today is really just the Rabbanan, right? Whereas the Chachamim hold that it's actually Deraisa, and they sort of go through how does that work? And then the other bulk of the Machlokas here is discussing, you know, when we say that you can't work the land on Shemitah, what activities are we really talking about? And so it begins with this premise of it's talking about any like a vote malachot. In other words, we're going to sort of take the malachot from Shabbat and say those are the things that you're also not allowed to do on Shemitah, which makes a lot of sense because it uses the same word of like Shabbaton, right? So it's the idea of resting the land in the same way that you would rest Shabbat. But the question becomes, what do you do about the toledot, right? What do you do about sort of the derivatives of those lamatet malachot? And so one of the things the Gemara here wants to explore is, is maybe the taledo, the derivatives, would be allowed. And that would be things like weeding and watering, which is what we sort of started up when we were talking about uh, chalamoid. So just pay attention. It's a very, it's too long of a full passage to read, um, but it's just, you know, it's a very interesting discussion that is really sort of our, which has practical application today, right? Like, how do we view Shemitah today, right? Even in the modern state of Israel, right? Is it the Rabbanan? Is it the Raisa? And then how does that impact some of the solutions that we come up with uh, halakhically for farmers who live in Israel today? So that's a much, much longer discussion, but I just want you to see sort of the basis for some of that is based on this very famous machlokas of Rebbe and the other Hanim about whether or not we say Shemitah is the or whether or not we say it's the Raisa. And then the second level of that is, is it just the Avot Malachot that we file for Shemitah? Or, you know, does it also apply to the Toledos as well? And the follow-up to that, of course, is that even according to the people who say that Shemitah is Doraita, today, nowadays, nearly everybody says that the Shemitah of nowadays, at least for now, is Drabanan. Which, of course, is much, you know, gets into how many how many different ways can we explore the, you know, how can we debate whether something is Doreit or Durabanan? Um, and part of it might even depend on how many Jews are living in the land of Israel, whether to make it Doreit, which is an interesting conundrum. Um, I'm going to leave that aside because it's really a matter of, let's say, contemporary halachic practice as opposed to Dafyomi. Um, what we have in the Dafyomi goes back to this discussion, though, of how serious is it? Uh, for for example, for somebody who violates the laws of Shemitah. Itamar, ha-choresh b'shvi'it. So we've got somebody who's plowing during the Shemitah year. Rabbi Yochan and Rabbi Yolazar, echad amar lokeh, echad amar So the question is, how do you punish this guy? And so Rabbi Yochan and Rabbi Yolazar have a disagreement. One of them says he should be, he should get whipped or flogged, right? He gets malkos. Um, and the other says, not. Right, that seems like a reasonable machloket. Yes or no? Lema b'drebi avin amar b'lezer k'miflige. The amar b'avin amar b'lai kol makom shneamar klal ba'asei ufrat belotasei ein danino to bechlal ufrat uklal. Now, what's complicated about this is the question is why would they have a dispute over whether the person who plows during shmita should be should get whipped? And possibly the gemara suggests that really what they're disagreeing about. It's not about the Shemitah here, but about the derivation of halacha that says, you know, to, do we have a principle that will allow the corporal punishment in this case? Because, for example, and this is the whole, you know, the background of Rabbi Avin saying in the name of Rabbi Lai, that it, when we've got a klal, meaning a general statement, and that is said about a positive mitzvah, and the formulation of Shemitah is a little bit formulated in the positive way, meaning to 
to let the land lay fallow is a positive act, like a positive inaction, right? It's a, it's a, as opposed to saying don't plow, right? It's do let the land lay fallow. Both apply at different times, but fine. So we've got a positive mitzvah. Then we've got a detail about the general that's, you know, stated as a negative mitzvah. Don't do that plowing, for example. I get, um, this is a little bit of the example as opposed to baking, tracking it all the way through. Um, and then, you know, when we've got that, let's see, let me just read it through again. We've got a general statement about the positive commandment. We've got a, a smaller detail, a specific detail with regard that's formulated as a negative commandment. So then we don't apply this this line, this rule of what does that mean? When you've got a general statement and then a small detail statement and then another general statement, which means that we the the principle is basically that the halacha, the bottom line, you know, what to do is going to ex- be expanded to any case that are like the prat in the middle of this klal. But so the problem with this is that always I find this this klal prat to be a little bit head spinning because it's talking in literally generalities and specifics. And then the and here in this case specifically, it says, well, maybe they're disagreeing about how to apply that rule, but the Gemara doesn't give us exactly how to apply that rule, right? It doesn't, it's not giving us the extra details about Shemitah. So the rest of the Gemara goes on to say, well, let's pay attention to that. Manda Marloka. So how would this play out? The one who says that he should be whipped, late late Rabbi Avin, then he does not accept this principle. The, um, why not? The, the why not? How does this work? So, here, let's see if I can track it through for you all. We've got here the verse, the Pasuk in Vayikra, that says specifically that you're going to keep this, the land on the seventh land to be resting, right? It's going to tishpot, right? And then we're going to, that's so that's the generalized um, positive commandment. And then that same Pasuk goes on to say, do not sow your field. Do not sow your seeds. So that's a negative commandment with a specific action, which is then followed by another generalization, namely, it will be for a year of rest. Right? That's um, literally the next verse in Vayikra. And then, so again, we've got klal, uprat, uklal. And from that, we could say, we're going to prohibit anything that resembles the prat, the detail. So not just sowing, but also plowing or also, I don't know, you know, weeding or whatever other terms we could do for that would be a specific, um, I don't know what, improvement of the land or something that, like that, that can be aligned with the prat here, the specific detail. And then, so that's manda marloka. So if you're going to say that he should be whipped, then we're going to say that does not apply to this klalupratu klal statement. Now, um, okay. And then the one who says they should not be whipped, right, does accept that this should hold. What is Rabbi Avin's statement? Namely, that the detail, that the prohibition that's in that detail against sowing is not going to be included, is not going to be extended to include other things such as plowing. Meaning, to which degree do you allow that the plowing is akin to sowing the seed or is it not akin to sowing the seed and if it's because the verse only gives us sowing it only gives us planting the seeds so all the other you know agricultural handling of the ground is either going to be considered of that same status and therefore would get whipped you know one who violates would get whipped or not okay 
I feel like this is the Gemara itself presents this in a little bit of a roundabout kind of way, but the uh, or rather, I would say it presents it in a very straightforward way if you know all of the antecedents that it's already talking about. But what that means is, bottom line, is that the plowing that this person has done in violation of Shemitah is the question of whether it's considered a corporal, a corporal punishable offense, corporal punishment offense, depends on whether the verse about not sowing seeds is extended to all the agricultural activities. Phew, okay. So then this goes on, and the whole Gemara here now goes on to talk about, and you can read it inside, it goes through a whole long list of other activities like pruning trees, for example, or fertilizing the fields, and all of those things are going to, again, be, you know, can you line that up with sowing your seeds or not? The top of Amabet gives us a practical narrative. He at Rav Dimi. Rav Dimi came to the land of Israel from Bavel. What did he say? He said, well, maybe you should be, you might have thought, says Yachol, Yachol, it's possible to think that one would get the Malkot for the addition, for the Tosefet. The problem is as follows. You might get it for the addition, but then, and then that would get you, um, and then, Okay, one second. Venesi Vlatalmuda, he's got a limud, he's got some kind of learning that will liftura, that will give you an ex- exemption from getting those malkot, meaning you might have thought that you should get those malkot, but in fact, we're going to paskin that you don't get them. The problem is this, and this is what Ravdimi is attributed to say Veloyadana, I did not know Ma Talmuda or my Tosefet, meaning what that teaching was. Or what the what the tosefet, what the addition is. So Rav Dimi comes and he says, you know, I we talked about this in Bavel. You know, you've pointed out already, right? Bavel, they did not have the same urgency to know what to do for Shemitah. So we talked about this and we figured out a way to exempt the person from Malkot. But I don't really know the basis for what or how or why. And I find that to be Ligamar uh, goes on, of course, in in more detail. But I find this this. The fact that this is here, the fact that Rav Dimi's statement is included in the Gemara is fascinating to me because it basically says, like, I, I remember somehow that there was a way out of it, but I don't know what that was, which, you know, is not really how we determine halacha. But it seems to have been important enough, at least as a, you know, um, protection, you know, to, to preserve the traditions that were included, you know, that were the learning that was happening at the time. So it's here. So I think this is a little bit what the theme of this daf is, is that the Chachamim of Babel are not completely clear about how did the Halachot around Shemitah evolve. You know, the next section has this very interesting passage where it talks about, you know, when can you plow before the Rosh Hashanah of Shemitah? And it talks about that Beit Shammai and Beit Hillel say, they say it's basically around the same time, but it's around Shavuot's time, that you can't plow afterwards because plowing after that, it doesn't actually help the fruit of the Shishit year, of the sixth year. And then it quotes that Rabban Gamliel says, no, it was only 30 days before Rosh Hashanah, meaning basically around like Rosh Chodesh Elul. And then the Gemara basically asks this question, which is like, well, how can Rabban Gamliel come ahead and sort of uh, nullify what, you know, what Beit Hillel and Beit Shammai said before them? And then it goes through a whole thing. Well, you know, maybe it's actually a halachal Sinai. Then it says, no, maybe actually we learn it from the Torah itself. And so what I see is there's a little bit of a struggle here to piece together, you know, 
what, how this was, how Shemitah was actually done. And not only that, but sort of the process of how were these halachot actually learned. And I think we see on this stuff that there was actually a gap. Some of this was actually, you know, that I want to use the word lost, but it wasn't completely clear to them. This was not a tradition. This, this was a tradition that got a little fuzzy. Maybe that's the way I would say it. I think that's fair. And I think that it, again, brings us into stark relief that that some of these details were, I'm sure some of this was being kept in the land of Israel at this time, even though it's long after the Beit HaMikdash. But how it makes its way into the Gemara and how much was being kept by whom, if, if you're not a farmer, how much did you know of exactly these details? Even nowadays, you know, if you if you keep Shemitah, let's say you live in Israel, you're akin, you know, around Israeli produce, you're going to keep Shemitah. But if you're not the farmer or you're not gardening, you make sure that something is, you know, okay and you move on with your day. You don't know. Can you pull that weed or not? So I feel like this is, again, like it brings the real life of the days of Chazal a little bit more to life, even though what it's bringing to light is the is the uncertainty. Well, that's our DAP discussion for the day. Rank us, reviews on all major podcasts. Thank you to Reverend Michelle Farber for hosting us on the Hadron website. Let us know what you thought about this app on our Talking Talmud Facebook page. And until tomorrow, go and learn.